Can a marriage survive infidelity? We dig deep to explore this thorny question. Join me, Jean-Claude Chalmet, and founder of The Place Retreats and a featured columnist for The Times, with Amy Cooper and Louise Daniels, on The Place Retreats podcast. Search Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite Android app. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to your next episode. I'm Amy. And I'm Louise. Today's guest is Dr. Shaham Daz. Uh, Shaham is a consultant forensic psychiatrist working in prisons and criminal courts, assessing and rehabilitating mentally ill offenders, and he's also an author. Hello, Shaham. How are you? Morning. Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Can you just explain what a forensic psychiatrist actually is? Sure. So a psychiatrist is somebody who's a doctor first, so we go through medical school and then after a couple of years of doing general medicine you can specialize in psychiatry which is obviously the assessment and treatment of mental illness mm-hmm. and within psychiatry there's lots of subspecialties so there's child and adolescent old age for example and then there's forensics so that's the crossover between the law and um psychiatry so i see people who have committed very serious offenses usually violent offences or sexual offences, who have serious mental illnesses. And as as you said before, um, I've worked in prisons. Currently, I work in courts. And also the the, the third uh, environment for a forensic psychiatrist is locked secure units for high-risk patients. Um, Yeah, I mean, initially, Shaham was going to talk to us about psychiatry and mental health in more general terms, but given the conversations going on and the events going on all around us uh, about you know, ingrained systemic racism in British society. We've decided to focus on asking questions about this in relation to the criminal justice system and the mental health systems, uh, both of which are areas, obviously, Shaham has experience of as a forensic psychiatrist. So the fact is that research studies and monitoring have consistently shown that of all the black and minority ethnic groups in Britain, those from black communities um, in particular are disproportionately represented in both the criminal justice system and the mental health system. And those two are linked, and we'll move on to that in in a bit. Um, And that's compounded by the fact that both of those systems really seriously disadvantage black people once they are within their remit. So... Um, something and you know I, I know this is a midlife podcast but I'm seeing a lot of midlife uh, posts on social media I'm hearing it from midlife people that I know this uh, like a real sort of um, denying of 
of of the fact that that, that um, black people are disadvantaged within the criminal justice system and mental health system. So, firstly, you know, black Britons make up twelve percent of prison population, but e- but that's even though their proportion in the general population is three percent. Is that is that correct? That's correct. And just to add to that, <clears throat> what I think is even more alarming is that when you look at the uh, population that are detained who are under eighteen. It's actually much higher. It's almost fifty percent of people that are detained in in secure units and youth offenders institutes are from uh, from minority ethnic groups. Right, Um, and if we go back to get a picture of how that comes to be, uh, we can see that black communities are overrepresented at, as I said earlier, every single stage of the criminal justice process, from initial contact right through to sentences sentencing. So black people are more likely to get stopped and searched, more likely to get arrested, more likely to get charged, and more likely to get convicted than their white contemporaries. Uh, so, Shahon, why is that? What is the precise nature of the discrimination in, in the criminal justice system? Um, that's a very good question, and it's also a, a very complicated issue. Mm. I think to answer that, you have to really get into the, the roots of the inequality. Mm. So that starts with the fact that there's a lot of socioeconomic factors that are stacked against minorities. So we're talking about poverty, mm inequalities in earnings, um, lack of educational opportunities and job opportunities. So, for example, black applicants have to submit several more job applications, even with the same qualifications as their white counterparts to get an interview. So I think all of these things contribute to why crime is prevalent in in certain communities. And also, I think violence breeds violence. So um, black-on-black knife crime in South London is is one very good example of this. Mm. I think part of the reason, uh, you said yourself, Louise, that it happens in in every uh, every aspect of the system, so from arrest to trial and conviction, I think a lot of that is to do with the lack of diversity within the judiciary itself. Right. So to, to give you an example, I work in two criminal courts in central London uh, and I work with around 25 to 30 judges and only one of them is from a BAME uh, um, origin. Um, and, and I think the root of the problem is that young black men and increasingly, I think, for young Muslim men are identified as being different or assumed to be dangerous. You see, I did read that somewhere that, you know, all criminal justice officials, so police officers, magistrates, um, often view, I can't remember the figures, but they view black men as dangerous and a risk. Do you think it's just actually just institutional racism existing at every level? I, I think it is. Mm. And I would like to think that it's not, coming from a place of hatred and it's not intentional, it's not overt. Uh, I'd like to think that it's a subconscious bias, but I don't think you could really know unless you get into the mind of of the perpetrators. And when I say perpetrators, I mean uh, the judges who, who give out sentences, the doctors like forensic psychiatrists who detain using the Mental Health Act, um, nurses who who restrain and medicate patients when they're in wards, and also the way that police officers treat uh, black pa- uh, black prisoners, so there's a much more likelihood that they will have education, adjudication, sorry, uh, and placed in segregation, like in solitary confinement. But the system, presumably the criminal justice system, I'm talking about now, it, it doesn't acknowledge institutional racism. Is it is it something that's brought up and it's just like, oh no, that, that's not happening? Or I, I think it's acknowledged. I think it's acknowledged. I think that the research shows a clear bias. So when you look at the actual proportion of um, black males that end up in prison and also the proportion of black males that are detained under the Mental Health Act, 
that's not only disproportionate to uh, the the population, but it's also disproportionate to the number of people that we know have mental illnesses. So to put that into context, we know that black men and, and white men roughly have the same incidence of mental illness, even though black men are, are far more prone to psychosis. Um, so I think the evidence is there and it's acknowledged, but to actually, you know, change a culture of thinking is is very difficult. And, and I, I don't know if there are clear, easy solutions to that, to be honest. I've seen so much um, online about um, changing the curriculum. So if we thread this all the way back to education, do you think that could be a, a, a cog in the wheel that changes that then leads out to better change? Yes and no. So um, working in the NHS and working in mental health, we have these modules, these compulsory modules um, to do with diversity. And I think there's an argument that if, if somebody's inherently racist, then sitting them down in a classroom and, and um, go, going through simulations is not going to change their core beliefs. But if you take it back mm. even further and you think about the history that you're teaching children, then I, I think that's a very valid point. So uh, to talk about my own experiences, I I remember from my history lessons at school, we learned about all Henry VIII's uh, numerous yeah. wives and we learned about the Tudors mm. and the Windsors. And from, from my personal schooling uh, experience, we didn't have one single lesson that talked about the British Empire they no. talked about, for example, the partition of uh, India and Pakistan, which caused the death of millions and civil war that's mm. going on to this day. And I think you could argue that that is more important because it had more of an impact on on um, on on the whole world than you know Henry VIII and, and her wives. And I think it should be done in a balanced and fair way. Like obviously, the British Empire yeah. did did do a lot of good and brought benefits to a lot of countries. But I guess my point is, is that if you don't know how it all started and where it all came from, then you can't, you're not really in a position to make an informed decision about um, how you judge a race. Absolutely. I guess it's about attracting more people of colour into the teaching profession, you know, rather than, uh, you know, a white 52 year old man standing there, you know, a history teacher teaching children. It can be you are having a, a, a better representation. Yep, from from teachers to police to uh, judges. Mm. I think I think it just needs to be proportionate. It, it needs to be fair. I don't think you could, you should swing too much the other way. There doesn't need to be an over representation, but then it just needs to be a proportionate representation. And especially at the, at the higher echelons, I think that's where the problem is. It's when you're talking about you know ministers and policymakers. Yeah. There needs to be a. a a, a diverse selection. So we, we've spoke a little bit about the, the mental health system. Uh, I mean, obviously the overwhelming evidence is that black patients' experiences are more negative than those of, of white patients. Could you describe sort of in what way or if they receive different medical treatment? Could you talk us through that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with a little story that I think is very relevant to this. Please. Stay, uh, yeah. So there's a man called David Bennett, uh, known as Rocky Bennett, who in 1998 he was in a medium secure unit which is exactly the kind of place uh, that i've worked in in norwich uh, and he was the only uh, bame person on his ward and he had an altercation with another patient who had racially abused him and the evidence suggests that rocky was was punished for this he was removed removed from the ward uh, and he was about to be taken to to be secluded and he became upset and he assaulted a nurse and then five nurses uh, tried to restrain him and he was restrained face down uh, for about for about 25 minutes and that's how long it took for them to actually realize that he, he died halfway through this mm. process 
um, and it was it was just handled really badly by the unit. Mm. So they didn't inform his family of the death until the following morning, and then they tried to they tried to suggest that it was from breathing difficulties. Um, and the CPS decided not to pr- prosecute anybody for his death. Uh, so the actual trial was in 2000. And of the five nurses, almost all of them have returned to work. And the, the formal inquiry found that there was systemic racism. And I, for me, that that's very reflective of the Black Lives Matter movement mm. and, and the reasons mm. that it all started in, in America. And the reason I brought this up was because it was one of, one of the cases that we were taught about when I was a, a registrar. And it actually changed some of the system. So... Um, after this all happened, after the inquiry, they made um, rules and protocols about about how patients should be restrained. So, for example, they're not allowed to be restrained in a prone position for longer than three minutes. And there's also like a national system of training and control and, and restraint. Right. Um, but to, to answer your question in, into, into how it happens um, or what it looks like, black people and people from minority ethnic groups are much less likely to be offered less 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 restrictive support so less likely to be offered psychology talking therapies uh, more likely to be detained under the mental health act i think black people are four mm-hmm. times more likely than than white than their white counterparts to be detained uh, they're more likely to be brought, brought in by the police uh, they're more likely to be restrained and medicated once they're in hospital uh, and there's there's community treatment orders. I'm not sure if you've if you've heard about these, but these are these are contracts that are made when patients are discharged from psychiatric units, and they have certain conditions. For example, taking medication, seeing your psychiatrist on a regular basis, um, staying away from alcohol and drugs. And if you break one of those conditions, then it's it's like a fast route to be readmitted. Uh, so you kind of bypass the mental health act and go straight into hospital. Uh, the reason I bring these up is because black people are eight times more likely. Um, than their white counterparts to be placed on a on a CTO um, overall. And are there enough of people like you to assess and treat, or you know, are you really rushed off your feet and unable to spend as much time as you would like to supporting, treating, caring for people? Yeah, um, I, I would say that there has gradually been a a big strain on on the whole environment. So even within the time that I've worked within forensic psychiatry, so I've worked specifically with offenders since 2011, and I can I can literally see over time that the services are just getting more and more um, stretched and overloaded. So there are there are not enough forensic psychiatrists in prison. Uh, there are more people with severe mental illness in prison. There's less spaces within forensic psychiatric units and the waiting lists are sometimes um, horrific. Like it's, it's not unknown for us to, to assess a patient who's floridly psychotic, who's refusing medication in prison. Uh, we refer them to the unit and for no fault, it's not, it's not um, a fault in the unit itself, but their waiting list is so long because the turnover of patients is so low that sometimes we keep, we keep prisoners for weeks, if not months, sometimes three, four months when they're really unwell, floridly psychotic. Uh, so I, I think the services are stretched. Mm. Funding cuts have certainly not helped. Mm. I think the coronavirus is actually going to make everything even worse. So a lot of the courts have been have been shut or are not dealing with the more complex cases. So they're going to be flooded, I think, when the restrictions mm. uh, ease. Yeah. Um, and people in general are going to going to have more mental health issues. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm painting quite a bleak picture, I'm afraid, but that's how I, that's how I see it. And so, as you know, regards to this institutional racism, though you've you've sort of answered what needs to change at recruitment level, more diversity. Uh, yes, is that change coming, or do you think we're it, you know it's still a long a long way off? Um, 
ask me in 10 years. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, I would like to, to sit here and say that I, I've seen um, indications that this change is coming, but I haven't, not in the time that I've worked no. in forensic psychiatry. Uh, I, I don't know what the aftermath of the coronavirus is going to be, but I think it's going to take possibly a couple of years just to get back to where we were before, just with the overload of new cases that are going to come in. Mm. Uh, so I think the fundamental problem of there not being enough money for, hen for mental health services full stop is the first thing that needs to be dealt with. And after that, we can look at the uh, eth uh, ethnic minority mm. um, inequalities. So I, I think it, the, the system is so underfunded right now that it's just, it's, it's creaking and it's, you know, it's a breaking point. Yeah. Uh, is mental health perceived differently in, in different communities? Uh, I think that's a very interesting question. So I think the, the answer is yes. So what we would classically see as some psychotic symptoms so for example hearing voices in some communities it's just it's conceptualized differently so some communities see that as, as black magic some some communities even see that as a positive experience or like a spiritual experience so that what we would call a psychiatric patient is is like almost a shaman who's who's um who can who can hear the voice of god um and i think that if they're treated well within the within their societies and if they manage to, to function then that then obviously that's a good thing but what concerns me is that it can delay or completely hinder paths to treatment so we know research has clearly shown that if if somebody suffers from a psychosis like schizophrenia then the longer they're not treated the longer they're not medicated uh, the worse their overall prognosis and outcome so, so that's one sort of major aspect of it. And I suppose another one would be that in some communities, I mean, e even, even in, in your mainstream Western community, there is a lot of stigma against mental illness, but I think it's even worse in some other communities. So it's kind of hidden. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And people just, just try not to try to brush it under the carpet. And whereas occasionally that, that might work and it might go away, for serious mental illnesses, it, it, almost, it almost never does. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Shaham, you're Asian. Your parents came from India and you grew up in a village near uh, Stockport where yours, I understand, was the only Asian family. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. I, think, okay. I think one other Asian family moved in a couple of years right. after us. Okay. So, uh, so we, we doubled overnight. Right. So have you have you experienced racism in the UK? Um is it right if I tell you a funny story yep. uh, related to this, and yeah. then, then I'll answer your question? Yeah. So I've I've got this I've got this cousin uh, who is uh, Asian, obviously, and he's he has got, he's got a white 
wife and the two of them were looking were being shown around houses around seven years ago mm. um by a white estate agent and my cousin was in a suit because he'd just come from work and the owner of the house was there and they they grabbed his elbow and they took him into the room and they were giving him instructions they were just saying can you you can show them from the outside but please can you can you not actually go in because there's, there's paintings <laughs> and my cousin was a bit confused and he was like um i'm i'm not the estate agent <laughs> Um, but that's funny we, wow. we laugh about that yeah. he told me the story and that's, that's funny um, but to answer your question I grew up in a predominantly white area and I think I was quite sensitive about being very different and I had a big sense of not belonging to be fair when I reflect back on it I, I don't think my experience was was that bad really um, I I had a few comments here and there I was called Papa Dom Shaham for a while which I, um, I, find, I find quite amusing now but it was, it was quite upsetting at the time yeah but luckily that that didn't that didn't take off as a nickname uh, yeah. it phased out after a couple of weeks um, I, I, I got on well with people I had friends I was quite sociable so uh, and my my background and my values didn't didn't feel very different from the people I was around so mm. I, I think I was quite lucky in life mm. uh, so I grew up in Cheshire I went to medical school in Edinburgh, which is um, quite a relaxed and a kind of studenty area. And then I've lived mm. in London. Mm. Um, I mean, I have got the odd comment, uh, as I think everybody from a, from a minority ethnic group has. But overall, I think I'm quite lucky. But I also think that I'm the anomaly. Mm. So uh, lots of other friends and relatives have had much worse experiences. So my, my parents came over in 1962. And at that time, there was overt racism. So they had mm. uh, signs in shops saying no colours allowed. Uh, they would tell me of, of times where they would they would try and rent rooms and they would be told over the phone that a room is available and then they would go there 10 or 15 minutes later and mm. they'd be told that it's been taken or sometimes they would have the door literally um, slammed in their faces. Mm. Um, in terms of my more recent experiences, as I've gotten older, I, I've, I've noticed what I think's not overt racism and it's not something that comes from a place of hatred, but... Um, just a difference in the way that me and my family are, are treated. Um, mm. And we, we're kind of treated with more formality and people are a bit standoffish in new so social circumstances at times. Mm. So it's happened It's happened a few times, but one, one uh, example that really stands out to me is I remember we went on holiday um, a couple of years ago into a ranch and it was it was quite a, a small space and there was several families that, would, that, that spent a lot of time together in a couple of weeks and we all arrived on the same day. And I just remember everybody was friendly, but there was a, a, a people were reserved in terms of coming up and introducing themselves to us and speaking to us. Mm. And uh, we were the only non-white family there and all the other families were within minutes just talking to each other, introducing themselves. And, you know, we all had we were all roughly the same age and had kids around the same age. And we, we did integrate. And, and to be fair, we actually got on very well by the by the end of the of the fortnight and um yeah, i made some friends from that holiday but it, it felt like we had to put ourselves forward i was gonna say were you were the ones making yeah you you had to really work 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 at that did you yeah it, it felt like we had to prove we're normal <laughs> we're, we're not different from you we can get on with you i can talk to you about the same kind of things um i'm, I'm not i'm not offended by that um and i i think that some people can be quite defensive about um the perception of, of people being racist towards them and, and that's that's not where I'm coming from but yeah it did feel like we really had to put the effort in. Yeah you're very gracious you've said quite a few times it's not done with malice uh, you know you've, you've just said that quite a few times and about it being a, a sub 
conscious thing. But then you've also said that you feel that you haven't had a, any really terrible, terrible experiences compared to what you've heard from others. So Absolutely. I'll tell you another um, interesting story, I think, is that I lived in Australia for about a year and a half. And in fact, that's where I started um, doing psychiatry as a career. So I went over as an AD doctor and then I, I changed halfway over there. Um, and I was, again, quite lucky because a few of my friends from medical school went there before me. So I came over and I already had like a social yeah. um, group to slot myself into. And uh, by the end of the time, I had lots of friends and at least two, I think possibly three of the friends that we had out there who were Australian came up to me at different points, unprompted, without knowing that I had this conversation. And they just said to me directly, when we first saw you, it was quite confusing because we'd never had a conversation with an Asian person. Plus, you got this English accent, which was really confusing. And wow. they just kind of assumed that I wouldn't sit with them and get drunk with them and, you know, and have kind of chats and banters with them. And I think that you can't really be angry at somebody for making an assumption because they haven't experienced a kind of person before. Um, I think they assumed that I would have a different culture and different values and just wouldn't be able to click with them. Um, but obviously the way, to, the way to deal with that is you just be yourself and you just get on with people. Yeah. Getting on to sort of like the what, what is happening, the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and the protest, the taking down of statues and these things that people seem to have polarised views on. What, what's your take on it? Do you feel like there is a, a shift, that this is a, a movement rather than a moment? I, I think there's a lot of anger. And I think it's justified. For me, it has to be done in the correct way and there needs to be a correct outlet. Mm. So I'm all for pe peaceful protest. And I think it's really important. And especially if people or communities are feeling ignored, disadvantaged, disenfranchised. But I just think it's a shame that there is an opportuni opportunistic criminal element inside, mm. um, which uses it as, a, as an opportunity to lash out um, from, from counter protesters as well, from the the far right and I think the problem with that not only because you know violence is inherently wrong but more importantly it distracts from the actual issues yeah because you see that um some areas of the media the right-wing press and sometimes even the main wing uh, media focus on that and I think that's very convenient because it, it helps us forget the real issues and the real quest questions that are being brought about by by peaceful protesters mm. so, that, so that's one of my thoughts I think it must be actually very frustrating for people who feel police brutality, especially because it's not changing. Um, so if you consider that the Black Lives Matter movement started in 2013, I think it was, after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, and now it's seven years later and, and you know, black unarmed men are still being um, shot down by police. Mm. Um, but having said all that, uh, that, I'm speaking quite a pessimistic way, I think that, that there does seem to be a bit of a, a shift, I think. I think that people are starting conversations in lots of different areas, so not just policing, but you know, music, entertainment, health, even education. So my wife is a teacher and she was telling me that her, because of the Black Lives Matter movement and what's been going on in the States and over here, uh, it's prompted them to have frank discussions about what they can do within their institution Brilliant. and in general to combat racism and to support BAME staff and students more. Thank you so much, Shahom, for talking to us and explaining some facts around issues relating to black communities, the criminal justice system and the mental health system and generously giving us and our listeners the opportunity to get a bit more educated. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That's all for today, but do check the show notes for more information and ways to get in touch. Produced by Louise Daniels. Visit louise-daniels.com.
Hiya, it's Rich Wilson, host of the excellent podcast Insane in the Membrane. I have a brand new podcast coming your way called Insane in the Fembrane, where I sit down with strong, confident, powerful women and find out what it takes to be a woman. Because uh, I don't really know, to be honest. I, had, I thought I did, thought I had an idea, but I don't. So our first guest is star of Top Chef and soon to be on Netflix, Crazy Delicious, it's Carla Hall. Prime example. I go out, I'm like, I'm gonna be a part of this yard thing. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna go out there. Okay, he cuts the grass, so I'm looking at those pine trees. It's like nine of them. I'm looking at those pine trees. I'm like, ah, oh, they're taking over our yard. So I'm gonna go in and cut the base of the trees off, right? And just so it can be really pretty. But before I got to that, I said, I think I'm gonna cut the tips off. I had a rope. I said, Matthew, let's just go off and cut the tip off of one of those trees. They're too tall. He's like, I don't think that's gonna work. I said, you haven't tried. <laughs> I go out with my rope. I didn't even get changed into a t-shirt. I have on a regular shirt, because it's yeah, gonna right. be easy. <laughs> I throw that rope up. I'm trying to lasso it to pull it down so we can just snip, snip. And I videotaped it. Just there was a video camera and I wasn't even thinking about the video running. I went back to look at it. Matthew was standing at the, this. Matthew was standing there looking at me like this ain't gonna work, but I'm gonna let you do it, honey. I'm gonna let you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I am laughing at the video. It just captured this exact thing that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, I went yeah, out yeah. to do to step into his role. He's like looking at me like that's not gonna work. That's not gonna work. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I'm like I had, I had to see it for myself, that like, you're right. But if he had said, Carla, it's not gonna work, and just beat me down, I would have I would have just pushed and pushed and pushed. So that's episode one of Insane in the Fembrain. Go and listen, subscribe, tell your friends. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 